0: Craig Hoffman. Yeah,
1: it's the Hoffman Show on HoffmanShow.com. And that feels fantastic to say. Sites officially up and launched HoffmanShow.com. That is probably how you found this here podcast. Whether you click through on Twitter, Facebook, I don't know, LinkedIn. You just decided that a friend told you the site was awesome. You visited. Appreciate you. HoffmanShow.com. Click around. All kinds of fun stuff. Uh, Some old interviews that you might find. Uh, entertaining. They're really meant for people looking to hire me, but that doesn't mean you if you are a regular listener, can't enjoy, say, Scott Van Pelt from St. Andrews last year, Mike Tirico last year, uh, before a Mavs-Rockets playoff series. That's like a full year ago at this point. Uh, But it's still fun to go back and listen, and they're good interviews, which is why I put them on the page that says Work Samples, so someone can hire me. All right. Uh, As for today, why does this site exist? Uh, We'll get to that in about 40 minutes because I know there are a group of you that listen because you're interested in my career. Um, And so I think it's dumb to ignore that audience. And I believe in transparency. I always have probably some level to a fault. Um, So my thought process and why I even made this site, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about that in half an hour. George Sedano, about 10 minutes away. And Chris Kroger, WFNZ in Charlotte. So we got both sides of Miami point of view. George spent a lot of time in Miami. Uh, and then obviously has the National perspective on Heat Hornets and the Charlotte perspective, putting a bow on the Hornets sees it. But Game 7 last night, Pacers-Raptors, intense game, um, not particularly well played. Uh, there's a quote, I believe there was a Rasheed Wallace quote that was circling around the interwebs last night on the Twitter, uh, basically saying, you know, both teams play hard. Both teams didn't play well, but they played hard, and that was that was last night, and the Raptors are looking like they're runaway dinosaurs uh, into the fourth quarter, and then just they couldn't close, and you're going for all of the struggles that this team has had in the first round the past couple of years, for all of the heartbreak, they can't possibly flub this up again. This fan base, or that fan base, certainly doesn't deserve it. You Canadian people, I might have to have, uh, I might have to call up my favorite Canadian, Adnan Verk, this week to talk about this, because you people are crazy. Jurassic Park, 20,000 outside the arena, that's amazing. That's awesome. And you're about to have a lot, I mean, Canadians are polite people, but if we were about to see how angry... They could get if the Raptors blew this. And a holy cow did they try. Let's fast forward all the way to it. The last play. Was that a foul on DeMar DeRozan? Yeah. Paul George drives right. Dumps off. Into the lane. deion Mahimi. And I think DeMar DeRozan thought it was a shot. Because he basically boxed Mahimi out. I guess the refs did too. No call. Clearly a foul. You can't move an offensive player off a spot like that, uh, especially while the ball is in the air or a pass on his way. Uh, hit him right in the hip, so Mahimi goes flying because he's in the air and off balance and then got hit in the hip. Uh, it was definitely a foul. And then, for some reason, known only to the five on the floor wearing blue, which is what the Pacers were wearing last night, they didn't foul immediately. And they almost got away with it because DeMar DeRozan spins across half court and he walked. Zero doubt in my mind, he traveled. The last two-minute report, which the NBA, if you're not familiar, issues what's called the last two-minute report where they review every call in the final two minutes and non-call. So if there was something where there was a clamoring for a call and there wasn't, uh, or a blatantly missed call that, that nobody's talking about, uh, that'll go in the last two minute report. And it's a public record of what the referees got right and what the referees got long in the final two minutes of a game. It's going to say incorrect on the DeRozan foul call. And I'd be su- surprised if there also isn't a mistravel on DeMar DeRozan. The referees had a chance for an instant makeup call and they missed it. Can't happen at the NBA level officiating wise. Uh, but also, obviously, if you're the Pacers, you, it's hard to feel bad for you because you're passing the ball to Jan Mahimi with six seconds left, down three in the lane. Actually, no, I guess it was probably closer to 10 seconds, and then DeRozan was finally fouled with six seconds left. Um, and then you don't foul immediately. It was poor. It was, it's, again, both teams play hard. Neither team played well. And the Raptors scored more points to the Pacers, or than the Pacers, so they get to move on to round two. Congrats. There... They will face the Miami Heat. They played well. And really, for the last couple of minutes of Game 6 and Game 7, clearly the better team than Charlotte. And it comes down to, as it so often does in the NBA playoffs, top-end talent. The best three players in the series? Probably. At least, yeah. No, I'll go three. Best three players in the series, all are Miami Heat uniforms. Dwayne Wade, Goran Dragic, Hassan Whiteside. Three best players in the series. I'll go Kemba Walker fourth. I mean, what Wade did in the final few minutes of game six, it's why he's a legend of the game. It's why he's going to be a first ballot Hall of Famer. It is what has made him a top 10, at times top 5, at times top 3 player in the NBA for most of the last decade. He just finds a way in big moments to come through for his team. Some guys, it's more reputation than reality, and I'm sure if we looked at Wade's shooting numbers, they're, they're probably not the best in clutch situations. But, man, when it comes down to big moments, there are so many you think of with him. Obviously, the 6 finals come to mind. Um, he certainly had moments during the 11 championship run. Um, he had moments in, in other uh, playoff games. I remember, um, I think it was the 12 playoffs. It might have been 12. It might have been 13. Um, against the Pacers, where he just comes out. It was 12. It's game, game six of the 2012 playoff first round against the Pacers. And just goes bananas. He had 40. He finds ways in big games to be still Dwayne Wade. And he hits two threes. It's his first two threes he's hit since December. December. It's May. It was April. Four plus months. Hits not one, but two of them. And then this just impossible rainbow turnaround fadeaway to sink the Hornets in Game 6 and thus sink their chances. Miami goes home in Game 7. Whiteside's amazing when he's engaged. And he was engaged. And Goran Dragic remembered that he's really good too and just took it to Kemba Walker. And that was it. The Hornets didn't have answers. The Hornets are going in the right direction. They've got some really, really nice pieces. Um, and, and they Steve Clifford, one of the very best coaches in the NBA, found ways to use Al Jefferson and Frank Kaminsky against Hassan Whiteside. Uh, that limited Whiteside's effectiveness, but Jefferson's not what he used to be, and Kaminsky's still a rookie. To try to lean on those two consistency wise is a formula that's going to end up with you losing. And Clifford just it was it was his best chance. Maybe he was going to get lucky, and if it's not for Wade's heroics, he does. But in the end, the top end talent of Miami comes through white side turns it up to an even different gear where he's not just blocking a couple of shots a game you know and I say a couple really more like three four but he's blocking five and affecting Lord knows who man, how many other ones there's also another looming situation in Miami that's interesting though um, and by the way uh, I'll take Miami in the next series and that sets up potentially probably uh, a showdown with Cleveland which is going to be an epic Eastern Conference final and especially if Chris Bosch comes back this story is really weird I just was in the car a couple minutes ago, and Dan Lebatard was talking about it, because Lebetard is researching a column that he's going to write for Miami Herald, uh, his newspaper down in Miami, slash, it gets co-published, if you will, on ESPN.com, on Chris Bosch. and apparently Bosch wants to play, and he's comfortable with whatever he's being told medically that he can play, and remember, we're dealing with blood clots here, like, this is stuff that can literally kill Chris Bosh. And I'll talk about it with Sedano more in five, six minutes. But he wants to play in the heater saying no. That's, that's not how this typically works. Typically the team is like, yeah, we're paying you a zillion dollars. Yeah, come on, play. And from a liability standpoint, Bosh is willing to sign a waiver. I'm, just, I'm fascinated when Levitard's column comes out to see what the doctors are saying what the people on each side are saying and how they interpret the medical information that they're being given. Because it's clear that Bosch wants to play and feels comfortable. And Chris Bosch is really smart. One of the brightest pro athletes I've ever heard isn't a guy who is just some meathead. But it doesn't mean he's not competitive. And as these games get more and more important, apparently he just can't stand sitting there, and he's willing to risk it. There's obviously no guarantee that if he played, something horrible would happen, but the fact that he's even willing to risk it at all is, I mean, I'm kind of parroting Levitard if you listen to his show, but it's amazing to me. And quite frankly, it's unwise. I mean, you got a family, man. You got kids, and until the doctors are on the same page that you can play and be alright, that stuff's more important. And I mean, who am I to tell Chris Bosch what he should be doing, but it just for a guy who's that smart and a guy who's got all money and he's got other interests and just be smart, man. That's like if you had a chance to talk to Chris Bosch it would be be smart. Don't be in a rush to to get back. There are things more important in life than basketball. And there are ways to be around the game uh, that aren't playing, and it sucks because you want to play. But playing in the NBA with what he's got going on, that's that's a risk that doctors need to be on the same page before you go and you undertake and, Right now, that's clearly not the case down in Miami. Craig Hoffman. George Sedano, radio and podcast host for ESPN. The NBA Lockdown Podcast is excellent. Highly recommend listening to it. Uh, new one coming tomorrow. And then George and Izzy, 9 to 11 Eastern on ESPN Radio and ESPNRadio.com. Sedano, always appreciate the time, my friend. Um, when you look at the Heat Hornet series, and it's such a weird series because the Heat demolish Charlotte in the first two games, and then all of a sudden, they're down 3-2. Is they're down 3-2, and that game six is unfolding, do you think Miami's coming out on top in that series? Yeah, I still feel good about it, just because the teams were so evenly matched. I mean, I know they're a three and a six,
2: but they both have 48 wins during the regular season, they split the season series, and ultimately... I look at Miami and the way they played this year, the most consistent thing about them was their inconsistency. And they never really, they never really won a ton in a row, and they never really lost a ton in a row. So the fact that they lost three straight, I felt pretty good about them going on the road and winning because, again, they've got the experience on their side. And this time of year, experience matters.
1: Yeah. And they've got top end talent on their side and that matters too. Um, now, of course, there are personal things for you with this because, you know, you're from Miami. You, you were part of the broadcast team there, but also you have to work with Amin Al Hassan uh, who has championed himself, the, the the captain of Heat Island. How insufferable is he? The governor
2: of Heat Island. Oh, is it the, the governor, governor, the governor and, uh, correct
1: terminology, yeah, important.
2: He's the governor. Uh, he, it's, I would imagine it is insufferable for anyone who doesn't have any sort of vested interest in the Miami Heat, but it's pretty hilarious, man. Like he has carved out this great niche for himself because if the Heat get to the finals, he looks like a genius. And, and look, man, I wasn't, I wasn't, uh, I was a little too cowardly to pick them to go to the finals. I just don't think they're going to do it. I think they could get to the Eastern Conference Finals, but I, and I felt that the entire way, but I sure as hell wasn't confident in picking them against Cleveland in a seven-game series, despite the fact that Cavs have struggled in Miami. I just think that ultimately they would have had home court advantage, which they do, and that barring injury, I think they could beat them. But he's put himself in a great position, because if they win and they get to the finals, he's a genius. And if they lose, everyone just kind of expected it
1: anyway. That's true. That's a good. I should start doing that. Let's just start predicting crazy things um, that could maybe happen. I guess um, in terms of how far you do think this Heat team can go. I mean, obviously, it's completely different if Drogic is going to play like he did in Game Seven. Um, but as you said, the most consistent thing with them and this—he's part of it—is their inconsistency. Where how do they match up for you in your mind against Toronto? <laughs>
2: Much more difficult matchup than Charlotte, in my opinion, because, uh, you know, look, Dragic is a solid defender, but not a great defender. And what they're going to have to do is they're going to have to find a way for Hassan Whiteside to also defend both positions, kind of like they did in Game 7 where Hassan got some help defending the post, which he'll need against Jonas Valanciunas in this upcoming series while defending the point guard. In that particular case, in Game 7, it was Kemba Walker, who may not be as shifty, or or Kyle may not be as shifty as Kemba, but he's stronger, I think, than Kemba, and still has similar enough game from a quickness standpoint that it's going to be troublesome for Dragmich at times. So I, I think it's going to be a collective effort. And here's the other part is DeMar DeRozan is a guy was given the Heat some problems. Now, Miami has several guys they can throw at him, and I understand that. But I just think that the backcourt will give them some trouble. And if the backcourt gives them too much trouble, that may leave guys open in the frontcourt. And, again, that could be a difficult matchup. Whereas, I don't know if I felt that Charlotte's frontcourt guys outside of Jefferson and Batum, but Batum got hurt during the series and actually came in hurt were really guys that could affect the situation. Um, uh, I feel like even though we may not know all the names, Solano's front court is pretty damn good, particularly with Alan Tunis. And they've got guys who shoot timely threes like Patterson. And Terrence Ross has been playing terribly, but during the regular season, he played well enough. Um Yeah, and they've just got guys that can play both sides of the ball. They've got two-way players there that can play three and D, which I don't feel like Charlotte had enough of in that series against Miami. So I think they present different kinds of problems, but what I will say is this, is Miami has found the hell of a formula with Luol Deng playing the floor that creates all sorts of mismatches. And the only time these two teams faced each other since Miami kind of changed up what they were doing and Chris Bosh wasn't in the lineup, it was back, I guess, just after the All-Star break, and Toronto won in... Overtime. I think it was March, mid-March. Toronto won in overtime. But there was no Dwayne Wade, so we don't really have an actual matchup that gives us anything, which I think favors Miami some because Toronto's reeling a little bit. They could be a little high on themselves after winning that first round series and just kind of taking you know, their lumps for so long, not getting, not having advanced after a seven-game series. And I think they are, they may be taking a breath. Miami could be primed to take a game in Toronto and flip home court advantage. So there are a lot of different aspects to this, Craig, that um, that we can dive into. But I think Toronto presents different challenges, but I think Miami – is it the same Miami team that Toronto saw in the regular season?
1: No, I think that's definitely fair. I want to get to Bosch in a second, but real quick, just one of those things to dive into. Um, I can't stand what Mark Jackson's been saying about Hassan Whiteside, people missing the boat. He was a royal pain in the ass, and he was impossible to deal with, and he wasn't ever focused as a player, which is why he's bounced around, literally around the world, forget around the league, and it's taken until this year. And even at times this year, um, it seems like the Heat have been like, what What are you doing um, with Whiteside? Where are they as an organization now on him? And also, could some of his problems flare up in this series when he has to battle a guy like Valen who is somewhat of a natural irritant because he's enormous, he plays incredibly hard, and he's not afraid to mix it up?
2: Uh, Where are they on him? I think, honestly, they don't even know themselves. I think they're still trying to figure out what his value is. And, you know, look, I look at it this way. You're right. He is still a work in progress. The blocks are great. He has moments and flashes where he's brilliant. But at the end of the day, he's still a guy who is easily rattled at times, can lose focus on both ends of the floor and can become disinterested because of lack of focus. And I think that concerns people. But we've seen him at his peak, and at his peak you're like,
1: damn, that guy's awesome. At his peak he can dominate a game like few other people in the league.
2: Right. So because of his athleticism at that position, which we don't have, we don't have very many of those guys that can do what he can do. So I think that all that is said, and yet the Heat are still wondering, okay, which guy are we going to get? Can we get him to be more consistent? Can we get him to focus more? Because, look, man, he's a little bit of a meathead, He's got a little bit of Gronk in him. You know what I mean? Yeah. In that sense. Well, can you harness that is the question. So I think that's a question that the Heat are still trying to figure out.
1: And then in terms of Valanciunas, do you think that we have some kind of dust-up between those two in this series?
2: Oh, look, probably. I mean, we had something with you know Jefferson and him jawing you know, at each other and doing their thing. Yeah, I think that's the case. But look, you saw in the last series, there was a time where Hassan was in foul trouble and you know, Chris Bosch in street clothes ran over right in front of him, kneeled in front of him, and just started kind of coaching him and yelling at him and telling him, like, he needs to kind of control himself. And I think that as a team, they realize how important he is to their success. So they are just doing everything they can to make sure they maintain his focus. Uh,
1: last thing on the heat, and then we'll move to the West real quickly, and then both of us actually have to go. Um, what do you make of the Bosch story? I don't know if you heard uh, Levitar this morning talking about some of the homework no, he I know.
2: I'm familiar with the whole story. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah listen. Uh, it's a tough spot, man. He wants to play. He's on these on this drug, right? He's a spokesman for this drug. And there may be a doctor may, who may or may not be associated with the drug company that is willing to clear him. But everyone else seems to not be comfortable with clearing him. And the other part of it is this. And I don't think enough people know about this. You know, the league, obviously, and the team haven't cleared him, which is the most important factor here. But, Eric Spolstra was on the floor back in March of 1990 when Loyola Marymount was playing in the WCC tournament game against the Portland Pilots. He was the opposing point guard when Hank Gathers passed passed away and passed out on the court right in front of him and died. He was several feet away from Hank Gathers when that happened. And so Eric has this wild experience with – the most catastrophic situation that's happened on a basketball floor or one of them. And I think that factors into this equation too. Like there's no way he's going to let Chris on the floor until doctors, that are related to the team and the league have cleared him. And yeah, there may be some issues here. Maybe the Players Association gets involved. I don't know how this is going to work. But the team is trying to save him from himself, basically. And Eric Spolster has a unique perspective on this that I don't think enough people
1: know about. No, I actually had forgotten about that. And that's a great point, too. Um, it's so interesting. But you're right. I mean, it's got to be independent doctors. It's got to be where there's no risk that he's I mean as little risk as possible a comfortable level of risk that it's unlikely that something catastrophic could happen uh before he could play uh, again George and Izzy 9 to 11 eastern on ESPN radio on ESPNRadio.com. I'll just ask you a broad question on the west to try to do this as efficiently as possible is there anything that happened this weekend that made you change your mind about anything whether it be the Spurs blow out of the thunder or how well the Warriors played without Stephen Curry
0: No,
2: no, because I had the Warriors in five. I thought that Dame and CJ could have one game in the series in Portland, and that's about it. And I had the Spurs in six. Now, I know people are going to overreact and say, oh, how dare you say the Spurs are going to have to go six games. Well, we've kind of seen it before where these two teams have met, and generally they tend to go six games. Yeah. Because if you look at it, and I tweeted this out the other night, uh, the, the excuse me, the Thunder are one and six in their history in playoff games in San Antonio, and the average margin of loss is 23, 24 points a game. So they've been blown out a ton. They only have one win in in the playoffs in San Antonio. That was Game Five in twenty twelve. So yeah, this is not surprising. I, I feel like the Thunder will will bounce back at home. I think they're going to go back in an 0-2 hole, but I think they're going to lose the series because I don't think I don't think they can win in San Antonio.
1: Yeah, no, I agree with all of that. These two teams play really, really weird playoff series. I was there in Oklahoma City a couple years ago when Ibaka came back and just the whole dynamic changed. And the Spurs wound up winning anyway. Um, again, follow me on Twitter at Sedano ESPN NBA Lockdown Podcast on ESPNRadio.com, the ESPN app tomorrow, George and Izzy weeknight seven or nine to eleven Eastern time. George Sedano, appreciate you, my friend. I'll talk to you soon. You got it, Craig. Anytime, bud. Craig Hoffman. Chris Kroger works down for WFNZ 610 in Charlotte, the leader of the Primetime Circus, uh, the afternoon show down there, does a terrific job, a terrifically entertaining show. Glad we can catch up with him on the heels of the Hornets season. And Chris, I'll start with this very simply. When you look at the season for the Charlotte Hornets, do you deem it a success?
0: Yeah, and I think it's going to take probably a few weeks to, to, for fans to maybe come around to that. But, I mean, by every single metric you, you could probably look at for this team, it, it, it's progress. And I think if you're looking at the word progress, I, I think you're talking about success for this Hornets team. And this franchise – you know, quite honestly, as much as the name and that brand is back for the Hornets for the second straight year, this is really the, the Bobcats. And when the Bobcats were here, they went to the playoffs one time or two times, excuse me. They were swept both of those times. Once was under Hornets head coach Steve Clifford in his first year. Uh, and he got this team back for a second time in three years. And there were 15 wins better than they were a year ago. Uh, They're a team that uh, tied four ways uh, for the third seed in the Eastern Conference, so it came down to tiebreakers that they finished in sixth. Um, You know, this is a team that, quite honestly, a lot of people didn't have winning more than 30 to 35 games this year. So career years from Kemba Walker, Nick Batum with a nice bounce back year coming over from Portland, and, uh, you know, some breakout role players as well. I think you'd have to look at this year as a success overall, although a 30-point loss in Game 7 is a little tough to swallow.
1: Yeah, no doubt, and I hate to just – flip it to the summer and what's next immediately. So in an effort to ask one more question about what was, what are the things that you take away or maybe one big thing that you take away moving forward that, I mean, I guess it is kind of a moving forward question in a way, but that that you take out of the season that is sustainable.
0: You know, For me, and this has always kind of been a larger topic, this idea of tanking, and the Hornets were one of those teams, that, they were the Bobcats at the time, who kind of subscribed to the tanking idea. You go back to 2009, 2010, they had a pretty good year. They won, I think, 44 games that year. Steven Jackson, Gerald Wallace, Boris Diaw, Rajah Bell, they had a good mix of veterans on that team. But they were a seven seed, and they were swept in the first round of the playoffs by the Orlando Magic. And Michael Jordan said, you know what, this isn't going anywhere. I'm going to blow this thing up. And they spent three years being really, really bad. And they drafted Kemba Walker. Uh, they drafted Michael Kidd-Gilchrist, M- Bismack Biombo, who's now playing pretty well up in Toronto. And it just didn't seem like there was an end in sight. And about two years ago, I think the team came to the realization, hey, this losing is this losing's taking a toll on the fans, on our business on the players themselves, the coaching staff. And they kind of accelerated that. And they brought in a mix of veterans. They continued to develop the young guys. And I think this is what you've seen on the other side. You can get better through free agency, free agency through the right mix of trades. And I think the Hornets have done that. They've balanced drafting. Although they haven't been great at drafting, they've drafted okay. They've done a great job in free agency, and they've done a great job in trading. And I think that's the one thing. It's a larger topic. I think it proves tanking doesn't really work. And you can get better, marginally so, through the other avenues in the NBA. But it feels like a lot of teams are abandoning that stuff right now.
1: Right. So I guess the follow-up question, which will allow you to further expand on, on your opinion on that topic, is then, What's next for the Hornets in terms of where where are they trying to go? Because the argument for tanking is obviously you be as bad as possible to get the highest pick as possible, which significantly increases your chance theoretically to get a superstar grade A level one player of which there are maybe twelve in the world. Um, so how do the Hornets go about getting that guy, or, or is that even the goal? Are they just trying to be? a playoff team every year and maybe catch a couple of lucky breaks? Or like, Where, where is this team trying to go? You know, I, I
0: think the Hornets, if they're smart, I think they're trying to mimic Atlanta a little bit because you look at what the Hawks have done. I think they've been in the playoffs eight or nine straight seasons off the top of my head. It's the longest active streak in the Eastern Conference. And, yeah, Atlanta was a one seed last year, got swept in the Eastern Conference Finals, although they're seeming to hit their stride right now. They found a way to kind of be pretty attractive in free agency. They're not going to lure a Kevin Durant. I know Dwight Howard was in the mix there a few years ago, but they brought in Al Horford. They brought in guys like Paul Millsap. They've just drafted well. They know what they want to be. They've got a good coach in Mike Budenholzer, and they've gotten good enough free agents. And I think if you're the Hornets, you want to be that because the Hornets used to be that, where they were the original Charlotte Hornets. You know, they were a team that was slightly attractive in free agency. They drafted well enough. They developed their own players, and they made some good trades to get a guy for a couple of years and then they'd ultimately flip that guy for another young player so i just think if you're the hornets it's kind of that sort of thing and you're probably going to miss out on a guy like demar Derozan in free agency he's going to cost too much as a max contract player but you re-sign nick Batum. you got to tweak you don't need to blow this thing up you just got to go tweak and, and you know quite honestly maybe a guy like dwight howard's interesting here because i know he's been linked to this team over the last couple of weeks his best basketball came in orlando understand Van Gundy but the assistant coaches on that staff were Steve Clifford and Patrick Ewing Steve Clifford's the head coach here Patrick Ewing obviously the associate head coach so you just got to make the right play you don't need to overreact you know you you take a risk on somebody but you buy low and you sell high and I think the Hornets are kind of moving in that direction right now
1: how big of a factor is Michael Jordan as a recruiting asset if any
0: You know what, I've talked to a lot of different guys, Mark Spears in particular, who's now with ESPN, wrote for Yahoo for a long time, Mm -hmm. told us on the show a few weeks ago. He thinks it's a big factor, and we've never really seen it come into effect yet uh, since he's been the owner and chairman of this team. I I do think he opens a lot of doors. So a guy like Dwight Howard, or name any free agent for that matter, if Michael Jordan calls or inquires about you, you have to listen doesn't mean you're serious about coming to Charlotte or playing for the Hornets, but you do have to listen to the greatest basketball player of all time. He's now the owner of this team. And I think especially when you look at the last couple years, obviously last year was a step-back year for the Hornets, but the two years in particular, the first year and now the third year under Hornets head coach Steve Clifford, they've made progress, and they appear to be a team on the rise. So I think it's a slight factor. I think until maybe they advance in the playoffs and maybe even get out of not only the second round, maybe they get to the Eastern Conference Finals if that's possible – I don't know how big of a deal it is, but I, I do think he, if he calls you, listen, and I think it's that simple for Michael Jordan.
1: Yeah, no one's not taking his call, which is nice. Right. Uh, that, that's a good way to open the door. Uh, another question real quick on, on Michael and then maybe to some of the players he might be calling. But uh, it seemed like maybe earlier in his managerial career, obviously with the Wizards, there was a lot of mistakes. And then even early with the Hornets, there was a little bit of that new owner syndrome, just throwing stuff all over the place and seeing what sticks, Um, as happens with hyper competitive and ultra successful people in other walks of life. Obviously, Michael's was in the same walk of life, just in a very different role. Um, But how has Michael changed as an owner the past couple of years that may have led to some of this success and stability? You know,
0: it's it's funny because if you go back to his years as a player, the, that first you know six, seven years where he was really good, he was dominant, maybe tried to do a little bit too much on his own, didn't have the help he needed around him. You know, he, he was butting heads with, with Doug Collins as his head coach before Phil Jackson comes in. That sort of narrative about how his career went, I, I think as a player, you've seen that play out as an owner, too. And you go back to the Washington years with Abe Pollin, where, you know, those two guys were – diametrically opposed to one another, didn't really care for one another. Then they came to an agreement to work with each other and then blew it all up. And after, after Jordan retired again, after his, uh, his comeback, I think you've started to see Jordan learn from some of his mistakes as an owner and an executive, just like he did as a player. And early on in the Bobcats years, I think he tried to be a little bit too hands-on still brought in Rod Higgins, who he's worked with for a long time, even in Washington. Higgins has been pushed out the door the last few years. He's brought in Rich Cho who worked in OKC, worked in Portland, I think he's starting to trust the people around him to do their jobs. He still picks his moments. Make no mistake about it. Frank Kaminsky is a Michael Jordan pick. That's not a Rich Cho pick. Kemba Walker's the same sort of way. I think Rich Joe liked Kemba Walker, but there was something in Kemba that Michael Jordan identified with, and that's where they went with that top pick a few years ago. So I think Jordan's picking his spots a little bit better. He still has his moments. He's still a control freak at times, but I think he's learning when to let go of some things and let other people who are really good at their jobs make those decisions sometimes.
1: Yeah, he seems to have an affinity for players with college experience. We'll see if that plays out uh, again in the upcoming draft. Um, in terms of the players that the Hornets might go after, you've kind of thrown out a couple of names already. DeMar DeRozan is going to be on their radar on some level. Dwight Howard on their radar on some level. Obviously, re-signing Nick Batum is on their radar. And to me, if, I, if I'm if i Rich Cho in that front office, I'm trying to do what Portland did last year and uh, with a guy like Al Farouk Aminu. Just come in, sweep in, maybe overpay a little bit, but get it done before any other team has a chance uh, because he's a Tier B or Tier C free agent to most other teams. Are there any players beyond the biggest names that'll be available that the Hornets are interested in that you think would be good additions that they maybe could employ that strategy on?
0: Yeah, it's going to be interesting. Maybe a guy like Ryan Anderson, although I think he's going to command a lot of money, but he's that typical stretch four. I don't, but you know, you've know, you got that player in Marvin Williams, and it'll be interesting to see if they want to re-sign Marvin Williams. It's going to cost a lot of money, or if they want to look elsewhere. I, I think this team needs some sort of physical presence inside, though. And I, I think we've probably seen the last of Al Jefferson, uh, at least as a primary option at center. Maybe he comes back on the cheap as a backup center. I, I think you got to find a way to get some physicality down low. And you know it'll be interesting. Maybe they do try and make a make a push to find one of those top ten guys. A guy like Pau Gasol, who's going to be uh, a free agent. I believe he's got a player option. I think he's going to opt out of that in Chicago. Likely, maybe yes. a guy like yeah. And, and you know maybe a guy like Joe Noah If you could swing a trade, he's still under contract. I think he probably would have been moved at the trade deadline. But he doesn't seem to fit what Fred Hoiberg wants to do in Chicago right now. So a guy like Joe Noah, I mean, guy going can give you defense, physicality, rebounding, you know he's a team player, he's good enough offensively. I just think they've got to find that guy in the center because they've got their wing players right now, and they found out Cody Zeller could be a pretty good rotational center, not a power forward in the NBA. So find that physicality. Al Horford's interesting. I just think he might command too much money, and i 'm not really sure if charlotte 's a play uh, for him in what he wants to do, so find it 's hard to find that that big man in the NBA anymore, and everybody, everybody says it 's a dying, dying breed anyway, but there is value to that and Hassan Whiteside I know he 's an unrestricted free agent. I think miami 's going to open up the bank for them you have to you can 't let a guy like that walk away you got to find that player, and they're, they're obviously very hard to come by right now in the NBA.
1: Yeah, someone's going to pay Whiteside max money, and they're going to hold their breath for every second of that contract. Yeah, that right. uh, cause he's Because he's just a different species in many, many ways. Um, last thing for you, Chris, uh, rumors or reports that Patrick Ewing is going to interview for the Kings job. Obviously, as you already mentioned, he's the associate head coach under Steve Clifford. If he does get a head coaching job, and we imagine even if it doesn't happen this offseason, it's going to happen at some point soon. He's becoming one of the top assistants in the NBA and obviously has a story career as a player. Um, what What do the Hornets lose if they lose Patrick Ewing on their coaching staff?
0: You know, I think they lose a guy with a really calm and steadying force in hand. And, you know, you look at him kind of like Steve Clifford. He doesn't get too high or too low. I think that's why he fits in really well on his coaching staff. And, you know, you look at Patrick and what he meant in this Heat series. They were really struggling down 2 0. They were getting crushed in the paint by the Heat in the first two games. I think they allowed 58 points per game in the, in the paint in the first two games when they're down 0 2. And Patrick Ewing and Michael Jordan both came to Steve Clifford and said, hey, I think we've got to post up Frank Kaminsky. And, you know, I don't know how many other assistant coaches in the NBA could go to their head coach and really, quite honestly, command that respect. There are coaches who probably were thinking that. But if Patrick Ewing comes to you, one of the greatest players in NBA history, one of the greatest big men in NBA history, and says something like that, you've got to listen if you're Steve Clifford. So that sort of experience, that sort of nuance to the game, and when you're bringing along a lot of developmental players who are only playing one year, two years in college basketball – And for a guy like Frank Kaminsky, quite honestly, he played four years in college basketball, was never asked to do much inside the paint when he was at Wisconsin. I think a guy like that, it's worth so much. You can't even put a number on that. So I think it's interesting. It's taken him this long to really get looks as a head coach. He's been doing this for 15 years as an assistant, but he is really good at what he does. And I think it would be a pretty big loss for the Hornets if Patrick Ewing goes to a team like Sacramento.
1: Yeah, you're definitely not the only one. It seems like everyone in NBA circles is miffed as to why it's taken Patrick this long to get looks, but uh, he's starting, and when that starts, it typically doesn't stop. Uh, Chris Kroger, you can follow him on Twitter, at Kroger, that's K-R-O-E-G-E-R. Listen to him afternoons on WFNZ down in Charlotte. Always appreciate you, man, and uh, hey, I'm actually driving through Charlotte uh, sometime in the next two weeks, so maybe I'll have to stop through and say Yeah, hello. come
0: on, get in get in the
1: studio. We'll chop it up. We'll talk some Hornets off season. All right, man, so Sounds good. I'll talk to you then. All right, correct. Call it a wrap. The final segment of the Hoffman Show. We'll call it Call It a Wrap. And uh, that is in homage to the show I did in college at Z89, the Central New York Sports Leader. Your party station now. It used to be something different. We used to be all the hits. That's what we used to be. I just paused like I had a producer in my ear. That was really an inner monologue that you got to experience in silence. We <laughs> used to be all the hits, but I'm old, so they're not that anymore. they are your party station, when they're playing music. They're great. They're on the iHeartRadio app. Anyway, I did a show there from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Sundays, and we called it Call It a Wrap. The show's actually got an insane history. Um, JJ from WFAN, John uh, WFAN in New York, is the one who founded the show, and Uh, Other people that have worked on it have gone into national radio stuff or regional radio stuff, like Zach Waldman, uh, who was there hosting it when I got there. Um, He is at IMG doing college, big-time college football basketball broadcast. Paul Gallant was his co-host, and that's my co-host. And now he's at Sports Radio 610 Houston with his own night show and could be getting an even bigger role soon. Um, I went through there, and I've I've done all right despite current circumstances. Um, so Kevin Fitzgerald hosted that show. He was with ESPN now as a play-by-play guy. Corey Crockett, my little brother. Kevin's my little brother too, but my other little bro, Corey Crockett, killing it in the music game. Like just stupid talented run of people that are go. have gone through that show. But anyway, it was the most fun I've ever had doing radio, and it was awesome, and I miss it, and I want to pay homage to that and it's also a fun way to package a segment because that's what this business is about kids packaging how is your package uh, so we'll call the last segment call it a wrap we're going to call it a wrap on the show and we call it a wrap on the Hoffman show today with a story about the Hoffman hey that's me um, why does this site exist And I touched on it very 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 briefly when I kind of rebranded a couple days ago or last week, whenever it was. Um, but there's a segment of the audience to the show, even if it's a very small audience, um, and that's a small segment, that uh, is one of two people. Uh, one, people who have been kind enough that they are interested in my work and what I'm doing because they, I was covering a team that they liked and they, they liked how I did the job and have followed me and thus are interested in me and my career. And there's also a growing group, luckily, of younger kids in this industry who I mentor that probably are listening to this and will appreciate this. So um, if you're listening just for sports takes and information or because Sedano or Chris retweeted it and you don't give a bleep who I am, like you can go on with your day now. Go, I, my feelings won't be hurt. But if you're interested... Why does this website exist? How did it come into existence in um, as brief a way as possible? Um, it was a series of conversations and ideas that all pretty much happened about two weeks ago. Uh, I went on a trip to New York. I mean, I've been kicking around the idea for a website for a while now, but I never I guess realized how easy in a way it was and how big of a difference it would make. Um, and also how much I needed it. I needed some new inspiration. I mean, this, this job hunt's been difficult. There hasn't been a lot of movement in the radio industry. I've looked in a couple of other places, TV, you know, digital places. Uh, I just, I want to be covering sports in a way where I can use my skill set, both on the opinion side and on the quote unquote journalism side, doing interviews and telling stories and some of the things that I've gotten to do and that I really enjoyed about my last role and really my last two roles. I had some freedom in Dallas, um, with a couple of different things, uh, that allowed me, you know, specifically with the Mavs Magazine show, to tell some stories and, and to dive into things with a different take, and I, I pride myself on having a unique take on things. Um, not so unique that it's like super hot take and out there, but that I, I see things in a different way, which in the end makes you a good host. So, the inspiration in part came from getting some feedback from some of the the biggest names in this industry and and really being told basically bluntly like the passion and opinion stuff um you know if you think of uh eric spitz from wfan in new york and he's one of the people who gives giving me this feedback has the poke scale um and he's obviously grading on the harshest scale you can he's looking at he runs a dominant radio station in the number one market um so when he's selling this it's you know you don't want to take it with a grain of salt but you realize that like okay you're not quite ready for that kind of big time. Um, but anyway, the scale is the the passion, it's the poke scale. Passion, opinion, knowledge, entertainment. Passionate opinion and knowledgeable and entertaining. Those are the things that he looks for in a host. And from a passion and opinion standpoint, or specifically from a passion standpoint, was it there? And I've always been much more of a subdued stylistically or a subdued style host. Um I save the big rants for things I think are that important. If you were to listen to me on a daily basis, you're not going to hear me screaming about something every single day. You can't. I I can't be bothered to care about every single story that comes across the news wire with the same intensity. But there's a way to display passion and investment in what you're doing, which is something I kind of discovered in, in. um, listening back to some old tape in preparation for some seminars I put together two weeks ago um, or a couple weeks ago for the college students up at WAER um, I went up there and did some some teaching uh, at the old student radio station and was listening to old stuff that I did in college and would occasionally send a clip off to a friend or my girlfriend and my girlfriend responded to one of them just going you sound so much happier in these clips than anything I heard you do in DC I was like well, it's the most fun I've ever had, as I touched on the top with this segment title, and got me thinking. Like, wow, I really gotta—you know—that's something I can control. Is the investment and the passion, and I don't think anyone that listened to me in DC would go like, "Oh man, you didn't care about what you're doing," because that's that's not true. Like, there are levels here, um, and it's not even that I cared more at Syracuse. It was just the environment um, was so free and loose and fun. And you're doing it with your, the, you know, you're making radio with your best friends, as opposed to people who you are assigned to work with. And even here, like, I love the people I was working with, but it's just different than your best friends. And I think if you honestly look yourself in the mirror, whatever it is you do for a living, um, you would rather do it with your best friends because who wouldn't, And without the responsibility of bosses and things like, and especially for us at Z eighty nine at the time, like we were the bosses. I was the general manager. Alex was the general manager before, Um, so you know my co host was the general manager before me. So like we were kind of in charge. Like we didn't have to answer to anybody. Might have put the FCC license in doubt in in danger a couple times, but yeah, we were on overnights. Whatever. Um. So like. Those conversations and then a conversation with DA about the style of the podcast I was doing. Instead of doing it like a podcast, do it like a radio show and that is going to get me reps of doing radio and it also gets me fresh tape. Um, If I do something that's really good, I can put it on the site and really feature it and um, get it out there to to prospective employers and, and be like, this is what I would sound like on your radio show as opposed to a long form podcast where you just kind of talk nonchalantly for 40 minutes. And so those conversations all led to another conversation with my cousin Scott, uh who is an entrepreneur and has started and and founded a successful business and has done, you know, it's in the the website development and app development world and He's like, it's pretty easy you know to get a website going that's good and you know you can use WordPress or Squarespace or Wix or one of these other you know spaces and um, create something that looks really, really good and and can put you can feature all your stuff and you can do whatever you want with it. and I'll help you. And so now all of a sudden I've got someone willing to help, I've got ideas, I've got a renewed focus, I've got this new passion and invigoration. and all of that came together in this. That is what you're, is either you're, you're looking at and clicking around on now or you're, is in the background as you listen to me or however you're consuming this podcast. HoffmanShow.com is a culmination of all of that. And for me, I'm kind of mad at myself that I didn't do it earlier because the difference that it, it makes in your presentation and just the feel of the investment um, that you have in your own career, like it's a pretty simple investment. Just do it. And so if there's anybody out there listening, thinking like, oh man, how do I get my stuff out there? Like make a website, make it look professional. I chose Squarespace. It was super easy. Um, Any question I had that it was either drag and drop and click and, you know, point and click or go to Google and type in how to do this Squarespace. And it would lead me directly to one of Squarespace's forums. And someone smarter than me would answer the question in a way that I could then go apply to my site. So easy. And here we are. And everyone's like, oh, man, this looks great. And I'm just sitting here like, thank you. And then internally punching myself in the head for not doing it faster. So that's how this site exists. Uh, that's why this site exists. And it's something I'm proud of. And it's it feels good to be invested in a project again. Um, that professional fulfillment is something I haven't had in a while, obviously, because I haven't, you know, been working. And even though I've been doing the the blog here and there, but now it feels like more of a responsibility and there's a responsibility to myself to do it to make sure that I was giving myself the best chance to be hired. But now it feels like, Hey, if you don't do it, like that thing that you put all that time into to build yourself, like it's not, it's not worth it. So that, I mean, it's my brand, but that brand investment is kind of a cool feeling. And, In a way, I hope I don't have it long because I would love a job again. But in the meantime, this is fun. So thanks for checking it out. Um, I'm happy to let everybody in. As always, tweet questions at Craig Hoffman, C-R-A-I-G-H-O-F-F-M-A-N. Or new, you can email me. Just go to the contact page at hoffmanshow.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for indulging me. Uh, I hope you enjoyed both the sports and the insight into what you're listening to, uh, why why it exists. And click around the site. Let me know what you think. Uh, Any feedback is welcome. And if you catch a spelling error, you're better than all the other editors that I had. Uh, Thanks for listening. Goodbye.